On, on June 3rd, 2017, a guy named Alex Honnold did something that's never been done before. After, after months and, and years of, of uh, planning, training, perfecting his technique, Alex successfully did a, a free, what's called a free solo climb of the famed El Capitan in Yosemite uh, National Park. And, and in order to give some context to that, just so we'd have a picture, you know, we're not in central Illinois anymore. This is, this is a rock, right? 3,000 feet from bottom to top of that. And if you're unfamiliar with free solo climbing, because that's just not something that really around here we get to do a whole lot. Free solo climbing would be climbing a rock by yourself, that's the solo, free of any ropes or safety gear of any kind. So really, you've essentially got the shoes on your feet and a bag of chalk around your waist for your hands to help with your grip because I would be sweating if that was me climbing the nerves of that kind of a thing. And that's it. Crazy, right? To climb a rock like that with literally no room for error. Cannot let go at any time. And for as interesting as Alex's accomplishment is, and then there was a, a movie made about it recently that you, that you may have seen, a documentary movie. As interesting as that accomplishment is, his lifestyle choices are, are interesting too. I, I, I didn't see the movie, so I don't know if it got into that at all. Um, he, at the time that he did this, he literally lived out of a van, right? not down by the river, but lived in a van <laughs> and could just drive, you know, drive to wherever it was that he was wanting to climb and just kind of live right there. I mean, he is hyper-focused on this specific skill. And I came across a quote by him that I thought just, I mean, I mean, he, he says it. He says, I want to climb in the best places in the world and that's my focus. So I'm willing to give up having stability, having a shower, having whatever in order to climb the way that I want. I'm probably more intentional with the way I live my life than virtually anybody. I have made clear choices about what I find value in what risks I'm willing to take. I'm doing exactly what I love to do. It's very easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it as crazy and stupid, but I can justify all my choices. Can you say the same about your life? I mean, those are the words of a man who's, he's not just good at rock climbing and he doesn't just like rock climbing. He is completely devoted to rock climbing. You hear it in his words and you see it in his actions too, being able to climb that rock free solo. We can question many things about him. We can question the risks he takes. I mean, he kind of referenced that. We can question his investment in that area. We can question, uh, Alex, is this really the best use of, of your talents? We cannot, however, question his devotion. I mean, I, the way in which he lives displays his deep devotion to rock climbing. There's really no question about that. Well, that's the topic for our time this morning. Not rock climbing, but devotion. Devotion, okay? Devotion speaks of, 
speaks of a love or loyalty or enthusiasm for someone or something. And I would say, whether we realize it or not, we are all devoted to someone or something. It's not, it's not a matter of if we have devotion towards something or towards someone, but, but where that devotion lies. We all direct our love and our loyalty somewhere. We're, we're all devoted in some way. So the question that I guess we ought to be asking ourselves is, where does my highest devotion lie? What's the person or thing that, that when push comes to shove, my devotion rests there? And, and because so many of us are, are followers of Jesus, it might just be easy to say, well, well of course, my, my highest devotion is to God. Of course it is. And, uh, but before we just assume that, and before we assume that our devotion is as complete as it can be, we're going to take a look at a story in Matthew, the next story that Matthew records for us as we examine this last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. This morning, we're going to look at the story where Jesus is anointed by a woman in the town of Bethany, and that's found in Matthew chapter 26. That's where we'll be this morning. Now, now we're going to focus on Matthew's account of this event, but I do want to draw attention to the fact that all four Gospels contain a story about Jesus being anointed by a woman while he is at a banquet. Matthew and Mark tell the story in a nearly identical way. Uh, John tells the story a little bit differently and even places it in a different spot in his gospel. And, and we'll, we'll explore that a little bit this morning. Luke tells a story that is very different and records that it happened probably two years before, before Matthew and Mark and John record their story. So, so the question is, what do we make of this? What do we make of, of, of those, the, the four gospel writers telling the story, at least three of them in a, in a different way, or two of them in a different way than Matthew? You might ask the question, is, is it proof that the Bible can't be trusted? The fact that here you got four gospel writers and they don't seem to be on the same page. Uh, some would argue that, that it just, it verifies that the biblical books are not inspired by God. Some people would say, well, of course they're, they're from humans. I mean, look at this. I mean, after all, wouldn't, wouldn't God have all four gospel writers tell their story in exactly the same way? Well, I would say no. No, that doesn't, that doesn't have to be the case. I mean, two people can describe the exact same event, but focus on different details, it, it just coming from their different perspectives, right? It doesn't mean that either one of them is wrong. They're just telling the different, their perspective, telling the story, right? So I, I would say, no, that doesn't mean that, that, uh, that God would have them all tell it identically. Should, should, we, should we take all four uh, stories and just combine them together, mash them all together, smooth it out, and, and just come out with one final story? And I would say no to that as well, right? The, the, the gospel writers wrote the details they did with a purpose. Right? They're, they're telling the story the way they're telling it for a reason. And again, inspired by God for a reason. Now, I'm going to pull a detail or two from the other accounts this morning, 
but it's only to help us with the context of it since we're 2,000 years removed, and we need a little help with that, right? Things that would have just been evident to the readers then aren't evident to us today because we don't live in that context at that time. So, so, so the, the, the other accounts will help us a little this morning. But, but another question is, were there perhaps multiple times that Jesus was anointed at a banquet? And, and I would say yes to that. I, I really think so. I, I think it's highly likely that Matthew, Mark, and John are all describing the same anointing. But I do believe that Luke is recording something entirely different than, than Matthew, Mark, and John. And because we aren't immersed in the culture, we, we, we might think that, that a person being anointed is an out-of-the-ordinary event. Like, wow, that's something that just doesn't happen very often. But in that culture, anointing at a banquet was not something strange. It was quite common, in fact. And so it's not only possible, but perhaps even likely, that someone like Jesus would have been anointed on more than one occasion. And so I think Luke is describing something that happened two years before where we are now, and that Matthew, Mark, and John are describing a different anointing. So, but again, our, our focus this morning is, is upon Matthew's telling of this event. And so we're going, to record, we're going to read what he records for us in Matthew chapter 26. I'd encourage you to, to follow along as I read it. Uh, it's page 831 in the Pew Bible, if you, if you want to go there. And I'm going to start a few verses before the story and end a few verses after the main story. And, and you'll see why as we go this morning. So Matthew 26, verse 1, it says this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, when I'm, uh, when I'm reading, studying, preparing for a sermon, one of the, one of the things that, that I do is, is I have a sheet with, with a series of questions on it that I want to think through as I'm studying a passage. And so one of the questions that, that, I'm, that I'm always asking is, how does the, 
How does the immediate literary context inform the meaning of the text? So, so why is the passage here in this place? Or why is the story here where it is? And, and sometimes the answer to that question is, is very simple. It's, 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 it's all about chronology, right? The story came after the one before it, and so it's told next, and, and, and so on. But sometimes it's not that simple. Sometimes a, a, a writer will deviate from a chronological telling of events. And in those instances, it is especially important to ask why. Why have they done that? Now, in, in verse 2 here, Matthew records Jesus saying that it is now two days until the Passover. And then in that context, in verses 3 through 5, we see that the religious leaders are meeting together and they're plotting to arrest Jesus. And then Matthew changes the scene in verse 6 to talk about this anointing of Jesus. But because we are people accustomed to chronological storytelling, our assumption can be that the scene shift only applies to the location, not to the time frame. So our, our, our just natural assumption is, okay, we're moving from Caiaphas's house, now we're going to Simon the leper's house, but that it's time-wise, it's one right after the other, right? But that's just the assumption, that, that that's, that's just how we often think. John, in his telling of this event, he clearly states that this anointing of Jesus took place six days before the Passover. Six days. So Matthew has just said, well, we're two days before the Passover, and the religious leaders are gathering together to plot. And then he tells the anointing story. So the question is, what gives? Because six days before the Passover, Jesus, he had, the triumphal entry hasn't even happened yet. So why... Matthew, why are, you, why are you putting this story right here in your gospel? Right? Why, why break from a chronological telling of events? Okay? And, I, and I think the best answer to that question is that Matthew is putting this story right where he did so that we would see it in comparison to something else. When we look at the three verses before the story and the three verses after the story, I think that is exactly the case. Surrounding this, this story about a woman's anointing of Jesus, her, her incredible devotion to Jesus, surrounding that are two scenes in which two men show their devotion to be to themselves. All right, so verses three through five, right before the anointing story. The first man was the high priest Caiaphas. He hosted in his home this meeting where all the religious leaders were scheming about how to arrest Jesus. And there's no doubt that the high priest would have been highly motivated to see Jesus silenced, see him removed from the situation. If you remember last week, Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple. So I'm sure that the person tasked with running the temple didn't appreciate that. Can you imagine that the high priest would have had issue with what Jesus was saying? In addition, the people were being distracted by this Jesus fellow, when their focus should have been on the Passover festival. Again, coordinated and facilitated by the high priest and, and, and everything taking place in Jerusalem. And then finally, there were crowds flocking to Jesus. The Romans didn't like it when, when 
people got riled up. They didn't like that kind of thing. They'd have no issue with coming in and forcefully dealing with the situation, killing people or damaging the temple if they saw it necessary. They might even hold the high priest personally responsible for how his people were acting. So Caiaphas most definitely had personal reasons for why it benefited him to see Jesus dealt with. And because his devotion sure seems to be to himself above all else, he took part in this scheme to arrest Jesus. So we get that right before the story of the woman anointing Jesus. And then the second man is right after that. In verses 14 through 16, we see Judas. Even though he's one of the 12 disciples, his devotion to himself led him to sell out Jesus. His devotion to his own financial standing seems to have taken precedence over his devotion to Jesus. And, and just to give some context on, on how low his devotion to Jesus seems to have been at this point, we read in Exodus uh, 21 that 30 pieces of silver was the price you had to pay if your ox gored and killed someone else's slave. Okay, so if you were, by extension, responsible for a slave dying, you had to pay the owner of that slave 30 pieces of silver. So in essence, Judas sold Jesus out for the price befitting a slave. I mean, it gives us context there, right, for what he's, what he's willing to do, what he is doing. His devotion to himself led him to work with the religious leaders in order to see Jesus arrested by them. So Matthew put the scene with the woman in between the two scenes with these two men because her devotion to Jesus is meant to stand in stark contrast to these men, devote their devotion to themselves. I mean, such a comparison makes those two men's devotion to themselves quite clear. It's quite apparent. Now, you know, you and I might be tempted to assume that our highest devotion is to Jesus, of course, right? But, but if our devotion was placed next to an undeniably devoted act toward Jesus, right, like with this woman, would our conclusion about ourselves change at all? And I'm not saying it's about comparing the value or, or, or the worth of different acts of devotion. It, it, it's not about trying to be devoted just like somebody else is. I, I don't think Caiaphas or Judas were judged because they didn't do the exact same thing that the woman did. It, it's not about that. Instead, it's about, it's about being challenged to consider our motives that lie behind our actions. It's about discerning if, if I really am devoted to Jesus or if my highest devotion lies somewhere else. I mean, I, I'm sure Caiaphas and, and probably Judas both would have verbally claimed devotion to God. But their actions proved something different, didn't it? So, so we can verbally claim devotion to God, but, but do our actions then prove something different? I think that's a question that, that Matthew's wanting us to ask ourselves by putting this story here, surrounding it with the stories of these two men. 
So as we shift then to the, the central story here about the woman anointing Jesus, even in that story, we're given another example of someone being devoted to someone or something other than Jesus. So in the midst of this extravagant act, the disciples were, were unsettled about all that took place. And, and again, to just give a little more context, in, in Mark's account of this story, he tells us that, that the ointment poured on Jesus' head would, would be worth more than 300 denarii. So a denarius was, was an average day's wage for a laborer. So 300 denarii would be roughly a year's wages. That's a good way to think about it. So if we think about, you know, just value today, if you figure $15 an hour working 40 hours a week, working full time, then that'd come out to roughly $30,000 in, in today's value. So the disciples looked at that $30,000 worth of perfume being poured out upon Jesus' head, and just immediately they thought about all the meals that it could have purchased to, to feed the hungry. They, they thought about all the, the clothes that could have been bought to clothe the poor. In essence, the disciples in that moment were more devoted to a form of worship, giving to the poor, than they were to Jesus, the object of worship. It's important to catch that. They, they seem more devoted to the form, doing it in a certain way, than actually the worship of Jesus, Jesus being the one worthy of worship. Now, caring for others is not bad, right? I mean, not at all. How many times does Jesus tell us that we ought to be serving others, caring for those in need? Doing so can be an act of devotion to Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But it could also be an act of devotion to just simply doing good. Or it could be an act of devotion to those who are in need more than it is an act of devotion to Jesus. I mean, it could be the exact same action, but the motive differs there, right? The motive changes where the devotion lies. And, I, you know, as I was kind of just reflecting on the, the disciples' response, my mind went to, I, I think there's kind of a modern-day example of this going on in our, our own culture right now. Over the last couple of years, there's been this, this uh, wide-ranging advertising campaign called He Gets Us. Maybe you've seen it, especially they had a couple Super Bowl commercials this year, so it's really in the spotlight now. But it's been around for, uh, for a couple of years before that. Uh, you know, there's, there's been no shortage of people who who oppose those ads, believers who oppose those ads. Some oppose them just based upon the money being spent. I mean, Super Bowl commercials aren't cheap, right? But it's not even that. I mean, there's, there's hundreds, of million do of hundreds of millions, I think, that they're, or maybe it's a hundred million. It's a big number that they're hoping to spend in this advertising campaign. Uh, some people oppose it because uh, they don't think the theology being communicated is is uh, deep enough, right? The, 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 you know, and there's different, different arguments there. Some, some oppose them because, because they say the second command is being violated about having an image of God. And so, uh, and, and maybe some of us 
find ourselves leaning toward one, one of those uh, responses a bit. And if so, I, I would challenge us to reflect on that situation in light of our story today. And I ask, I ask the question, is, is this ad campaign breaking a moral law of some kind or a, a God-given law of some kind? I don't think it is. Like, I, I, I don't think that's happening. Um, is this ad campaign at its heart an act of devotion to Jesus? And, I, you know, I, I can't make a definitive statement about every single person involved in, in uh, the whole thing. But, but I think generally it is. I think generally it's an act of devotion to Jesus. And, and so as such, even though it, it might be devotion to Jesus, it's different than how I would do it. Right? But, but man, I ought, to, I ought to rejoice. I ought to be devoted to Jesus by rejoicing that another person is being devoted, or in this case, you know, a group of people are being devoted to him. You know, if, if, we, if we find ourselves believing that devotion to God ought to always be shown according to certain specific parameters that we have set up, then I think there's a good possibility that we're being more devoted to a person or to an idea or to a tradition than we are to God. And so I just, I've just been wrestling with that, with this campaign and what we see here with, with the woman. But, but enough about the acts of devotion that aren't directed toward Jesus. Let's, let's look at the woman in the story. Because, it, it, man, she, she showed her devotion to Jesus in a powerful way. And so as we look at her this morning, I want to, I, I want to highlight three characteristics of her devotion that I see coming out in her act. And, and my hope is that by looking at these three characteristics, that, that we'll be challenged to consider if our own devotion to Jesus contains those kinds of things as well. So the first thing that, that really stands out to me about the woman's act of devotion is that it's personal. Because this jar of ointment was so highly valued, it's likely that it contained some kind of personal connection. It was likely a family heirloom. Had, you know, had, had she wanted to show honor to Jesus, she could have gone out, she could, she could have purchased much less expensive perfume with which to anoint him. In fact, that, that's commonly what you did at feasts. You went out and you bought something that you could then anoint honored guests at your feast. But, but in this act, we see the woman giving of her, her own family's heirloom. Her act of devotion was only something that, that she could have done. It was unique to her in that way. It makes me wonder how... Are, are, are my acts of, of devotion to Jesus personal in nature? Or am, I, am I simply going through the motions that, that it seems like others tell me I ought to do? Or, or am I truly worshiping Jesus, devoting myself to him in the way that flows out of who I am? Which is a good question for us. Who are we as, as, as people? Who are you as a person? What makes you, you? It's a very existential question, right? Who, what makes you, you? And how does then your personality, your giftings, your, your resources, your opportunities, how do those things inform 
and play into your devotion to Jesus. It's, it, it's not about keeping up with what we see on social media. It's not about conforming to an idea about what our devotion ought to look like. It's about being devoted to Jesus based upon who he is and then who we are. And, and you see that in, in uh, the woman here this morning. I mean, she worshiped Jesus in a way that really was, was her doing it, her giving something that was precious to her. So her act of devotion is very personal. And then another, another characteristic I see is that, that there's no question her act of devotion was sacrificial in nature. We already talked about the value of uh, the perfume, you know, in today's money, about $30,000. The common way to anoint a person at a banquet was, was a drop or two. You, you really weren't dumping the, the whole thing over someone's head or, or onto their feet. So, so the fact that, that she poured out the perfume suggests that even though it was expensive, she, she used it lavishly. She gave lavishly to Jesus. No doubt that was a sacrificial act on her part. Some Bible scholars would say that that a family heirloom like that was essentially an insurance policy for the family. That, you know, if things went really bad for whatever reason, then the family could have sold that perfume and used the great amount of money to meet their needs and and get them through that, that hard time. So by pouring out the perfume, the, the woman was sacrificing that, that safety net. You know, she, she was sacrificing a great deal of net worth, no doubt. You might even say that, that she was sacrificing any honor which she may have had by, by doing something that, that uh, was so strongly questioned by, by others that were in attendance. We know that in that culture, women weren't generally given a lot of honor. Um, But John lets us know that this woman's name is Mary, sister of uh, Martha and Lazarus. So so it's possible that that Mary being a close friend of Jesus, that that might have come with some kind of honor for her. And when she does something that that is opposed like that, opposed by other people, man, that that honor might just go away. She was was willing and, and she did sacrifice all of that in her devotion to Jesus. She considered Jesus, in so doing, she considered him to be worth that kind of a sacrifice. And she was right, wasn't she? He is worth that kind of sacrifice. And so then the question for us is, am I sacrificially devoted to Jesus? Am I willing to sacrifice things of value in my life in order to devote myself to him. Or we can ask the question, kind of turn it and ask it differently. Is there anything in my life that I'm unwilling to sacrifice? And that might be a good way to discern if there's anything to which we are more devoted than we are to Jesus. Is our devotion to him sacrificial in, in nature? So the woman's act was personal, it was sacrificial, and, and it was one of, of total devotion as well. Uh, uh, Mark tells us in his account that she broke the flask when she poured, it upon, poured the perfume upon Jesus. Seems to indicate that any remaining perfume could not be saved, that, that it was all poured out. It was total. 
And then in addition, when, when you think about it, it, it was such a complete act of devotion that her name isn't even attached to it. Now, I know John gives us her name in his gospel, but Matthew doesn't. And, and again, when you, when you look at the context, when, when Matthew puts this story surrounded by the others, Matthew is sure to give us the name of Caiaphas, the high priest. He's sure to give us the name of Judas. He even names, uh, he even names Simon, who hosted the banquet. I mean, it doesn't even really matter, but the, he gives us that name. But this woman's act of devotion, which Jesus said is going to be told along with the gospel message across the whole world, it, it's not even going to have her name attached to it. Think about that. That is total devotion. It is not done for herself in any way. It didn't matter that this woman would be left with a broken, empty jar and no public recognition for her action. She was so totally devoted to Jesus that she went through with it anyway. And, and again, as I reflect on myself, as, as we reflect, we can ask, is, is my own devotion to Jesus a total devotion? Is it a devotion that keeps nothing for myself but, but lays everything at the feet of Jesus? And again, it's, it, it, it's not about you and I doing just what this woman did. Instead, it's about being encouraged and challenged by her her uh, devotion to Jesus. It's about looking at my own devotion to see where it maybe might not quite be what I assume it to be. Um, if, you look, if you've got a bulletin, if you look in uh, the, the sermon notes section of your bulletin, there's a, there's a picture in there today, picture of a flask. Represents the, the flask of ointment poured out by the woman in the story today. But the, the flask in your bulletin, it's, uh, it's empty, right? There's, there's nothing in it. And so what, what I challenge each of us to do is to fill that flask, either with words or if you like to draw with pictures, of what is important to us. So whether it's, it's name of, whether it's a, a list of something or a name of a person or whatever it is, filling that flask with the things that are most important to us, most valuable to us, we might say it that way. And then the challenge is to, like the woman, come before Jesus and pour out that flask before him as an act of devotion. Let's worship Jesus by saying... Whatever of value I've placed in this flask, it's not as valuable to me as you are, Jesus. And so you can do that, uh, give you permission while we're singing the songs coming up. If, if God's speaking to you, you want to fill it then, you can. And go home and do that later. But I would encourage you to, to, to do that, to write down in that flask those things that are so precious and so valuable. And then... How, whatever that looks like then for you to pour that out to Jesus. You know, you think about going back to that opening story of Alex Honnold. Um, I mean, his, his devotion to rock climbing is apparent in all that he does. All that he does. Not just in how he climbs rocks, but, but his daily life. You might even say that his devotion is personal, it's sacrificial, and it's total. 
But being devoted to rock climbing or, or anything or anyone else is eventually going to prove itself to be empty. It just will. But being devoted to Jesus will never leave us empty. It never will. It will never be misplaced devotion. So, like the woman at the banquet that we looked at this morning, may we be people who are personally and sacrificially and totally devoted to Jesus. That's the challenge for us today. Let's stand together. Let's come before God. Father, we, we gather here this morning and we know that you are, you are worthy for so many reasons. I can't even list them all. But you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of all of us, everything about us. You are anything that we can and do give to you, you are worthy of it. So God, would you, would you help me and would you help us to really be challenged by, by this woman's act of devotion toward you? Would you help us to, to look at our own lives and situations and, and just the context in which we find ourselves and, and to really consider what it means to be devoted to you above all else? God, and I know that's not a, that's not just a one-time thing. That, that is a daily, step-by-step way to live. And so would you, would you help me in that, God? Would you help all of us in that? Would you increase our love for you so that we desire to be devoted to you in that way more and more? So that it even just naturally happens more and more. God, we're just so thankful that, that you are who you are and that when we place our devotion fully in you, that, that it is not misplaced. We give you praise for that this morning, God. That, that's, why we're, that's why we're here. That's why we're devoted enough to just to give you time this morning. God, but may we not stop there. Would you guide us in that, God? I pray that you would be, you would be pleased as we, as we come to you, as we, as we continue to sing your praises. God, focus upon you in, in song. Would you, would you receive this morning what we bring to you? God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for how you showed your devotion to us, how you gave of yourself that we might be your sons and daughters. God, we're so grateful for that. We pray all this in your name. Amen.